guys. I hope you are staying well and safe during this time. Today, I sit down with Tony. Tony spent seven years in the New York foster care system, and he is an advocate and voice for foster youth and other youth who are involved with various child serving systems. Tony has talked at many reputable college platforms like Columbia University and Hunter College, and he shares the way that aspiring social workers can connect with young people in an authentic way without making them feel uncomfortable. Tony's main career goal is to be a foster care influencer and make changes throughout the country using his platform to inspire others. When he's not being a superhero for youth in need, Tony spends his time reading classic literature, listening to music, traveling across the country, and meeting new people. I was so happy to be able to sit with Tony and understand his experience. He has a unique experience. He actually put himself into foster care, which is something that can happen. So I really liked hearing his take on not only his experience, but what mattered for him and what he thinks we need to do for other foster youth. And he also has very inspiring words of wisdom for kids who are in care. All right, guys, let's go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Pretty good. Well, I'm really excited that you agreed to come on the podcast, and I'm I'm excited to be able to promote your podcast to my audience. And um, I, if it's cool with you, we can just jump in. Sure, let's do it. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, so I know that you use your experience in foster care mm-hmm. to educate others um, to really be the voice for foster youth. So let's start with learning a little bit about your beginnings before we talk about, you know, how it made you who you are today. So if you could just let us know, like, where were you born? And what do you know about your family of origin? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm born and raised here in New York City, although I was uh, partially raised in Canada, and uh, over in Toronto, Canada. And I have some family uh, from Florida, some parts in Atlanta, Georgia, some parts in, you know, the Midwest. Uh, But I also have uh, some grandparents that live in Montreal, Canada, which is pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Beautiful place to live at. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I just have mostly centered around those two. It's mostly on my mother's side, though. So uh, not too much on my dad's side, since I just didn't know him personally. So yeah. Sure. Cool. So You were born in New York, and you obviously know um, a lot of people in your family of origin. So how, you know, how did you come into care, and what was your early childhood like? Sure. Uh, So uh, it's kind of messy. I I was living with my mom for the the first part up until I was about five or six, and then because she couldn't take care of me, I actually moved in with her foster parents or her, her former foster parents. So that was quite the loop, I would say. And I kind of just had to forcibly adjust to that. Uh, I was living in Long Island and I, I don't know, I always felt like the outsider, I always felt like the kid that was just 
kind of there and oh yeah that's that's Anthony and you know I was just kind of like I don't know I was just kind of there I, I never yeah I never felt like I belonged so I didn't really care for the experience uh I did get exposed to new things that I probably ordinarily wouldn't like being able to travel to like summer vacations and meeting new people but I was always wondering like why can't my mom take care of me and you know just feeling frustrated and not wanting to adapt to a new family situation so yeah so what was her experience so I think it's cool in a way that her foster parents were available and willing to you know take in her kids um, when she needed help later in life. So what was her story like? She obviously was in care. Right. And did she age out of care in, in their home? I actually don't know the full story of my mom's placement. I know that she had gotten abused. So it's like this whole generational mm-hmm. traumatic experience of like physical, verbal, and emotional abuse, among other things. Mm-hmm. But I know that she aged out at, I think it was 18 at that time. I think she signed herself out of care and she just wanted to be done with the foster care system. Sure. Um, But she had me at 17. So I think that kind of like changed her perception of her direction in life. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, I think she, I think, I don't think she had the proper supports in place to age out, but she just did it anyway because she just wanted to be done with it. Which I completely get. Yeah, I, I get that. And there's not many options once you're 18. Right. And and now she's a mom. Okay, so you were with her. She was very young herself. And she aged out. Where did you guys go? Do you Did she have housing? Was she able to, like, it's a lot to have a kid at yeah. 17. So we have this thing uh, in New York City called uh, NYCHA, so New York City Housing Authority, mm-hmm. um, or a.k.a. public housing. So mm-hmm. she ha- she was able to get a spot over there and uh, it, cool. it's about 30% of your gross income. So she was able to, you know, uh, be able to afford it relatively easily. And at the time I was going from my grandparents to living with her. So it was a very, it was very confusing for me. I, uh, after I lived with her foster, her former foster parents, my grandparents felt like they could do a better job of taking care of me. And they certainly had the income and the housing to, and the stable housing to provide that for me. But I was also conflicted because I still wanted to live with my mom. So yeah, it was, uh, it was just confusing for me. Like I, I still got to live with family, but it just looked different in the in the sense of when do I get a choice and when do I feel like I could just be myself without having to put on this kind of mask, right? And just feeling like I'm okay when I'm really not, so. Yeah, and it's not like a bunch of people wondering, like, where's Tony going to go or how are we going to take care of Tony? It's just you feeling like you belong and that you can focus on other things, right? right. Not like shelter and like, where am I going to live? And, and, and No, that's real. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's intense. So what triggered you going into care? What And did you go directly into the her, her um, previous foster parents' care? Uh, yeah, it's a little confusing. Uh, so I know well, because because so sh- and even your grandparents like, but I think it's really helpful for listeners because sure. people are like, we want like a linear, pretty picture of like, sure. so this is what happened. 
and that's not what it is right yeah it's it's actually interesting so what happened was eventually they felt like my mom was stable enough to have me in the picture and i would go on to live with her permanently at the age of 12. and for me i thought and this is a re- reoccurring theme it seems in my life that i'm in this new place i'm excited it's a new start. Everything's going to go great and there will be no troubles. <laughs> and it's just like, sure. just goes downhill. And <laughs> my expectations admittingly are too high at times. What happened is that it was a great place to live. I, I, w- I was living in the projects, but it was living with my mom. So I didn't care. I was just like, yeah. who cares? Like roaches occasionally. I don't care. Like <laughs> I get to live with my birth mom. And you know, I got everything that I wanted. I was pretty spoiled. I was I was the only child for a very long time. Then it just kind of went downhill. I'm not, sh- I can't say exactly what happened, but there just was a time in which like I started getting physically assaulted by my mom and my, and my stepfather. And I won't go into like the explicit details, but uh, just safe to say that I, I did feel unsafe in my, in my home. I constantly was fearing coming home. I felt like there was no support system for me. And I actually got to a point where I told my mom, I actually want to be in the foster care system. Mm. And she's like, you're not serious. You wouldn't really do it. And I'm like, no, I I actually hate living with you right now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for me, the physical abuse made me feel more than anything that if you love me so much, like you say you do, why why does it hurt so bad? Mm. I just couldn't grasp grasp the feeling of this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I expected after all those years of fantasizing about living with my mom and finally having the reunion. And I would be told things like, you're useless. You're not going to be crap in life. And I eventually got to a point where the physical abuse was getting so bad that I just left. (laughs) I just ran from home, really. That's that's Mm -hmm. the story. I just went to the near the only precinct that I knew. Uh, I just told them my story. I was pretty shaken up. And the next thing I knew, I was just getting transported over to like almost like transitional housing for young people that were just going inside of that were transitioning into the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Again, it was another big change. It was a move. Were you ever like, oh, shoot. Oh, snap. Like I've made a big decision here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think. Uh, I just had a lot of racing thoughts. I was just really, I'm like, I'm really doing this. I'm really leaving. Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no turning back after this. Yeah. So a little bit more about the day I left. It was 30 degree weather and I was wearing a shirt in some shorts. Mm. And I must have looked like a, a, a crazy kid, just like, <laughs> just running around with my hair yeah. all, like I had an afro at the time. And you know, my hair was just like sticking out. I don't know. It was just, it was just such a surreal experience because I had never, I always felt scared of the consequences. I always, my mom would always say things like, if you tell anyone, I'm going to beat you harder. Or if you, t- mm-hmm. if you say anything about what, we, uh, what I'm doing, no one will care about you. Right. And just like these little scare tactics to, make me just shut up. And once I got to that point where I just said I had enough, I just took the courage to be free. Yeah. So I, I like, I wonder 
you know, as a social worker, there are so many kids mm -hmm. that unless they know their birth parents or they have contact with them, I would say they all idealize what their birth parents are, what the relationship would be, what that would look like. I mean, they just yeah. dream about this beautiful situation and they only remember like the times at McDonald's that were really fun. They don't seem to remember like the negative parts. So I wonder how impactful your story could be on a kid that is like, I know if I could just get back with my mom, everything would be okay. Mm -hmm. Because that's, I know as a social worker, it was tough for me, like, we're going to make this happen. And like, you're going to make contact, but like always so nervous about the disappointment that they might feel once they kind of see the truth. Yeah, I think that's, that's so difficult, because I feel like you do have to temper your expectations of what of going into it uh i think we all feel like naturally that this is this is the place to be this is the place where i'm going to have fun and and you know be loved you feel like you belong yeah yeah and yeah. it just wasn't like that for me and i'm not sure if i would have changed it necessarily because I, I wouldn't have known that i was going to get abused by my mom um right so I, I I'm not sure I would have changed anything. I think I do feel like my expectations were were normal. But in the case that someone that a, for, a foster youth uh, has been going through traumatic experiences, uh, maybe from their parents, and they're going back to that, I definitely would say that do temper your your uh, expectations in the sense that like it's just not going to be what you think it is. And I do think it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, it, it's uncomfortable. It's just not a really, no, I get it. And like, what's coming to mind for me is like, I would, I feel like I've encountered a lot of kids that say like, I don't care. Like, I don't care if it's living in a car. I don't care if it's the projects or if there's roaches or whatever. Like I know my mom loves me and you didn't, you know, you didn't care about that stuff. Um, you just wanted love and to be, yeah. to feel like you belonged. And then to kind of come to the realization of like, if this is love, I don't really want right. a part There's of it. There's definitely hard limits. <laughs> yeah. You're like, this doesn't feel good. No. This, is, this doesn't feel right. So what age were you then? Yeah. I was 14 years old when I officially entered the foster care system. Okay. And for me, that was, uh, I mean, that alone was like super traumatizing because I know beforehand I had said that this was something that I wanted, but that doesn't lessen the fact that it's still a very traumatizing experience. Sure. And when I went into, into care, not only did I feel that that moving sensation of like a new environment, new people to in, engage with, having to put on that mask again and just like interact with people when I know I feel really bad inside. I'm glad that I, I didn't end up in multiple foster homes, which I know is a mm -hmm. very common experience. But that being said, I still felt like some of the feelings I felt when getting into foster care was just this sense of helplessness. Uh, 14 years old was the first time where I experienced suicidal ideations and I didn't see the purpose in living anymore. I was just like, if no one, if my mom doesn't love me, who can love me anymore? Uh, my brother is uh, in a different foster home. I don't know how to see him. And I, was, mm -hmm. I, I just had really terrible ways of coping. And I do think yeah. that this is one of the biggest things that I hope a lot of foster youth do take to heart is like being able to learn healthy coping strategies. Because I know what it's like to have 
unhealthy coping strategies and that consume you. Um, I would constantly yell at people. I would start arguments. I would try to fight people. It's not that I was a bad kid. It's just that I had no way of managing my emotions in a healthy manner. And no one really taught me that. I didn't have any mentor or a positive role model to kind of show me in the right direction. So luckily I had my, uh, my foster, my uh, first and only foster parent outside of my aunt. She, she uh, told me that, you know, here's a journal. I think you should write. And I felt like, I don't want to write. Like, I just want to play video games and watch TV. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And for me, I just like, as soon as she like, she's like, well, I think it would help you. And I just like put on my headphones. I'm like, I'm not trying to hear you. And she like left the room and I just like flung back fuck. And I'm like, I don't need this. And I remember it was raining one day, so I couldn't go outside. And this was about a week into me being in the foster home. And I was like, I had my phone and my phone had died. So I had to charge it nothing good on TV. So I was just like walking around kind of bored. And oh, this damn journal keeps looking at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just like kind of look at the journal. I'm just like, okay, like, I don't know, let's try it out. And I was so amazed at uh, the stuff that I wrote in that journal. It was a small one. I actually have it like right over here, but it's a, uh, it's like, 14 years old at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's a small little brown journal with a little Velcro, uh, a little um, yeah. code in the, yeah. I get what you're saying, yeah. And I just wrote the whole thing out, right? And oh wow, I was, I was just so fascinated at all the things that was buried in my system, all the mm. pain and the frustration, the mixed emotions, the sadness. I feel like I was socially conditioned to bury that all in or to suppress it, you know, tough it out, be a man. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those times I I, I wasn't sure how to manage that again. So, yeah, it was just it was a lot to take in um, getting into the foster care system and just managing. Did you share with her like did you share with her that you journaled or? Yeah, I eventually did. I only got to see her. I I was only there for a month. Um, okay. But that's only because, like, my suicidal ideations were be- becoming stronger, uh, despite mm-hmm. journaling. And uh, I did get to see her a few years ago, and we do keep in contact occasionally. So, That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> but Even more for my listeners. I, I have listeners that, you know, um, serve uh, foster youth and or our foster parents. And it's like, this was a pivotal moment and suggestion for Tony just to get a journal. And, you know, it didn't, he didn't, he wasn't even receptive to it, but it's small things that people can do. So you said that, you know, your suicidal ideation was getting more. So did, were you like referred to a higher level of care or something or? So it had gotten to a point where I was starting to write in my journal and I had written something uh, about like blowing up the school and like, I was just so heated and I guess they eventually found it and they just were like, we got to do something serious about this. So this was the next transition was being in a mental health institution, which that further cemented like trauma in my life. Mm -hmm. 
and it made me feel like I don't know. It. I think this is one of those situations where like I, I feel like I just had very little control of my life, and at this point, it it, it reinforced the fact that you don't have a say in 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 your own life, and we're just like pushing you and guiding you along the way, and you're just gonna like take what what happens. So yeah, and to me, like it's it's you know we talk all the time about kids who have endured early developmental trauma and how they feel like it has to be something that's wrong with me the fact that i didn't get parents that could care for me or parents that my parents didn't love me enough it's it's my worth so i feel like i can imagine feeling like if i had suicidal ideation because of my past and then i was put in a mental in a mm-hmm. i don't know are they called mental institution yeah <laughs> um if i was put there that i would it would be like another like this is your problem like you're the issue mm. we need to fix you rather than like you know what no wonder you have suicidal ideation like life hasn't been cool to you and life doesn't look very appealing so thinking about ending life makes sense like someone to mentor and work with you on like a validating empathetic level rather than like ooh, this kid's got a whole bunch of stuff going on it's a liability so let's you know like it's just it feels no i agree i i think actually after getting into a mental health institution i uh i i kind of was like a sponge and i just like wrote literally everything that had happened while i was there because i would have forgotten honestly <laughs> just this association is a real thing yeah um <laughs> but i do feel like um after reading some of my own story of when i was like much younger a lot of times I was reading uh, some of it back and I realized that there was a lot of blaming, right? And uh, it was just this sense of like, why uh, why is this kid even here? Like he's he's gone through so much trauma, but yet he's pinned for being like out of control or being this, this troubled kid. And he's just like experiencing everything that's going on without really any say in it. So I think that really gave me perspective because it allowed me to feel like, one, I was way stronger than I gave myself credit for in that situation. Just being able to adapt and keep a level-headed mind while like Mm -hmm. kids are taking prescribed medication and, you know, staff just don't have your best interests in mind. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of felt constantly attacked or felt like I was the one to blame. Mm. And when I was in the mental health institution, I felt like, again, uh, this sense of not belonging somewhere. And like, this isn't truly where I, where I belong to be um, in my life. Um, A lot of the kids were heavily medicated. A lot of the kids were, there was a lack of mobility. So I couldn't just go outside. Um, Everything was locked down. And I think the major, I always say the major thing that for me was that I always felt like my life was run on a board. Um, Everything was structured and everything was kind of laid out for us. Mm -hmm. And it was to a point where they they tell you when to eat. They tell you that you can't have a phone. They tell you if they, you have to ask to use the bathroom. It was just like, almost like jail. (laughs) Well, yeah. And and like, you're like everybody wants to have the basic things you know love and shelter and food and like their basic care needs met and like you want a normal life like 
any kid wants a normal life, any adult wants a normal life, and any teenager wants some independence. And it's like you're getting farther and farther away from like normal. Yeah. You know, like you know it when you're put in an institution, when you're put in foster care, like you're labeled. You're labeled as a foster kid, then you're labeled as an aggressive kid that we need to take care of, and then you're labeled as some kid that has mental health issues and is suicidal and now I don't know about your particular facility but it feels like regardless of how welcoming staff are anyway anywhere like you are always either you're a client you know you're a somebody that needs treatment right so it which feels not normal it doesn't (laughs) it just feels like I'm another number like I'm just I, I really hope this place shut down. Uh, I remember it was called Brunswick Hall, and it was like in Amityville, Long Island. And the treatment there was horrendous. So they knew that kids couldn't have money on their on their uh, person. So they would actually order kids to like fight each other for for Chinese food, and it was just the most traumatic thing. They're like, "Oh yeah, here's." $20 to buy Chinese food and beat that kid up. And it, they would just like clap for their entertainment. It was, mm. it was sickening. Um, I remember not having any choice of the medication. And for the longest time, I was very anti-medication. Uh, but I come to realize that I just, it's not so much, I, I do think people can have their choice of medication. I just feel like, give us options. Give us like, yeah. don't just throw like, <laughs> Uh, DBT at us or therapy, but like actually, I I, I just feel like I would have had a lot more to gain if there was like a, a sort of peer youth advocate of sorts, um, or someone with lived experience that can kind of mentor or tutor me uh, of different resources in my area or just ways to cope. Because I feel like that would have been much more relatable, which I would eventually become. But it was just frustrating, and I kind of. Uh, I feel like the uh, another frustrating aspect of this whole thing was that it was a very cookie cutter. It was a very one size fits all approach, um, meaning that like it doesn't acknowledge that kids are just in different areas. Um, and I just felt like not to be condescending, but I felt like I was in a much higher place in terms of wanting to grow. And I just felt constantly stagnant. I felt complacent because there just wasn't anything to further me uh, in what I wanted to do. I just kind of felt like I'm in this place. I'm stuck here. There's nowhere for me to like interact or to have a community of my own or have that sense of normalcy. I just want to be a normal kid. Yeah. And I feel, and I can, I can imagine like when you're put in an environment where there's other kids that might have been involved with the law. They might have sexual violence charges against them. They could have huge behavioral issues that look worse than yours. And so if everybody's thrown together and that's kind of what you have to deal with every day and you're put in the same category as kids that are, have huge behavioral issues, then where's the incentive to like learn something or make something, you know, of yourself, or like, it feels like the easier path is, or the only path is like survival. Yeah. Yeah. That you, and you almost know, like falling in line, like falling in line of like, this is, I guess, at what point do you like, just agree? Like, I guess this is who I am. Yeah. Especially when you feel like no one's 
listening to you or that you your voice has no value yeah and there's no choice like you just said like they're like at least make me feel like i have an option even if if the options are this drug this drug or this drug like give me give me some type of like make me feel like i'm a partner in my care in some way and if you have zero options and you're already labeled and the prescribed treatment has they couldn't care less what you want yeah um do you, in that situation do you just look at i'll get out of here at x date and things will be different then like do you keep having the hope like where yeah I, where does your mind go I, I think for me i i constantly felt that what kept me grounded honestly was just this daydreaming of i'm going to get out of here eventually and like this is all temporary and mm just the writing i mean honestly i feel like if writing wasn't such a healthy coping strategy i would have lost my mind because like it's just it's just so traumatic i mean the kids also there they didn't have healthy coping strategies and uh i remember i told you earlier that you know i was having suicidal ideations this i feel kind of pushed it further because there was other kids who had suicidal ideations Mm. and they actually attempted. And I'm just like, holy crap, like what's going on here? And like, just get me the heck out of here. And I felt like it was so wrong that because I got further traumatized by being in the hospital that they felt like I should be there longer. So it was just like Mm. this reinforcing cycle of like, we're just going to keep you further institutionalized and like you have no options and like you're locked down. So just really frustrating and really didn't see any hope in how this was all going to come together. I just followed protocol. I just kept utilizing my, my coping strategies. I didn't really trust anyone. I didn't trust adults. Uh, I felt like they were all like pieces of crap. (laughs) And that, yeah, you know, like, who has my best interest in mind? How can I tell if someone's really going to rock out for me? And it, it got easier over time. I think after I transitioned from, like, a residential treatment facility, and it was a little less locked down than a mental health institution, for sure, you know, but I still felt stagnant. But at least I had my first taste at a job. At least I had some sort of money at least i was able to make more phone calls uh Mm. you know at least i was able to actually get in contact with my family and i found out that it was then that i realized that my aunt is actually a former like she's a a foster parent herself so oh wow what got frustrating for me was just that why wasn't i told this like where was the miscommunication in that couldn't you guys have called my relatives and find out who wanted to take me in? So I, I just felt I thought like, they had to. I thought I thought <sighs> all relatives had to be exhausted. It, it made no sense. I, and she's like, yeah, if I had known, I would have just taken you in. And I'm just like, are you serious? And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Three years just out the window for I'm, I'm not going to say it was for no reason, because I do feel like there was a lot of life lessons I got from it, but it was just, I didn't have to go through it for that length. But after the mental, uh, the residential treatment facility, I did transition back into living with my real aunt. 
uh, in Brooklyn, and I got to stay there for about five years until I finally got my own place from 22 onwards, and that's kind of the transition period there. But from 17, uh, when I officially left the residential treatment facility and got to live with my aunt, um, I was back in the community. And this was like, Mm -hmm. I, I felt like for me, this was the big push for me. There was no one forcing me to take medication anymore. I was almost 18 at this point. You know, I had options. I could just go outside. I can have a phone. I can have friends. I can, uh, my aunt wasn't restricting my movement or like, you can't do this or. Were you in public school? Uh, yes, I was. I yeah. went to school in Brooklyn. So you got to experience. Actual. School. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, I mean, that's a big deal. Since like <laughs> three years later. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I had that feeling of like, this is going to be it. And I mean, there were some things that I didn't re- necessarily agree with, with when living with my aunt, but in no way was it, can I say it was abusive? And it, was it unhealthy in some manners? Yes, but um, I wasn't getting hit. I mean, there was some arguments, but more than anything, I just struggled to find a better place I could have went to, honestly. It was a family member. It was freedom. It was pretty much everything that I could have wanted. Um, yeah, and all you know, families have their uh, yeah their, their problems. <laughs> you know, there's uh yeah, there's plenty of kids that that don't make it into foster care that you know questionably could have could have gone into foster care. So so yeah, I get it. Like it's not maybe a therapeutic placement, but it's your it's your biological aunt. And did you feel like she was obviously she was able to give you a home for five years. Yeah. You're now transitioning into a young adult. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm really happy that she was able to give you a home for five years and it wasn't like a year and 18 year on yeah, your own or something. That would have been. <laughs> Did you still have some of the negative coping mechanisms that you had when you were 14, which kind of put up red flags for authorities or whatever? Like, did you feel like you were able to not deal with your anger in a way that was harmful to others? I mean, I think there was still times where, um, like, being socially isolated or withdrawing from people, I think, was still a big thing. Um, There was still times where I I was, I had cases of anger, um, but it was considerably reduced. Not a bunch of, like, bar fights or, like, getting expelled (laughs) at school. (laughs) I think a big part was just that I felt more free to be myself. Yeah. And I felt like I just no longer had to hide behind like these institutions or or felt like I had to play an act to get me uh, closer to my discharge, right? I would just be on my best behavior. I would put on a fake persona. Uh, It wasn't until like I was almost 18 where I actually felt comfortable enough to like let my guard down because so many times I had to keep my guard up. Yeah. And start to explore your identity. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, who am I? It's kind like, of a late bloomer a little bit in that sense. Just like, Oh, here I am. But I actually met other kids in my agency. I went to the independent living classes, which I found pretty helpful. Um, I just utilized all my resources. And I think that was the big thing for me. I think that being able to actually have choice and options and mm-hmm. have a healthy loving support system that actually fostered my my growth that was huge for me and i do i do strongly believe that 
the single most important thing that every former and current foster youth needs is a healthy support system. From my observation, I feel like that's what separates the, the youth that are able to grow and prosper from the, the youth that kind of falter and don't have as much resources. A quick story on that. I uh, Just last year, I was actually out of a job and I was wondering like, how the heck am I going to get out of this? And it wasn't it was only because I had people in place who really had my best interest in mind that I was able to get back on my feet and really prop me to a point now where I'm a mental health counselor and I'm able to help the same people that, you know, I was in the same realm, the same system, right? So it's, I really feel like it comes in full circle and it allowed me to really see how far a healthy support system will take you. I think that you doing the one-on-one work is so needed and that's where the difference is made. Like we can make policies all day long, but like I started Stable Moments, which is a, um, it's an equine program that matches up foster or adopted kids with a mentor. And yeah, I I checked out your website. It's really nice. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. So, so like my whole thing is that like, we're good enough. Like all we need is members of the community to give an hour a week to these kids and like, do it in a do it in a setting that's cool like a horse farm and and whatever. So I'm all about moments. Like a moment where you throw a journal on a bed and you're like, dude, I think you should write. Or a moment that you show up for a kid every single week for 10 months. So as much as I'm like, we need to change systems, I get the very micro level of like, how are we gonna pour into individual lives? Because there is no blanket like, let's just, you know, change this policy. No, we need actually humans. We need like a nice, caring adult to care about a, about a child or to invest in them or to help build their interests or tell them that they matter and that they have worth. And so I don't know that any policy will do that. Like I do think it takes community members, people like you, people like me, and all the other people to take this on as their personal uh, duty. That's such an underrated thing too I feel is like just showing support because I feel like oftentimes that was the one thing that just was never supplied it was just like uh we're gonna uh everything was kind of just half-assed so what has life looked like now you have you're now living on your own Mm -hmm. are you a peer counselor or yeah I'm a peer counselor yeah I love the peer counselor roles because I've worked in a few whatever mental health facilities and I can, you can never get through to uh, the people there like the peer counselors could. If you only had one message to give the world, what do you think it is? Mm, wow. There's a... and, do you, and what would be the audience? Like, is your audience foster youth? Is your audience the rest of the world that needs to wake up? Like, I feel like, I guess to, to broaden my horizons a little bit, it would be just people who have experienced trauma in general uh, Mm. and or kind of coming from a place of brokenness, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think my message would be more, you never know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice you have. And that's one of my favorite quotes Mm. because oftentimes I felt like, you know, I would just throw in the towel and I'm just like, I can't do this. This is too much for me. Uh, but then there always seemed to be like this, this turnaround, this turning point for me. And like, 
suddenly I was able to like reach deep inside and like really find the strength to overcome a lot of my hardships and adversities. And it's just, it's just so hard to, you know, when, when everyone's beating you down and you feel like you have nothing to give, but I, I truly do believe that, you know, someone in my role who has gone through the experiences and does have the experience to like lead youth in the right direction. I feel like there is hope and there is like, you know, even if it's like one or two people, but potentially tens of thousands with my podcast, um, <laughs> I'm hoping that people can uh, just feel hope, feel, um, yeah, you know, feel this beacon of light, this hope that they can overcome some of their obstacles. So I think that's the big thing. Don't discredit yourself. Definitely, uh, you're far stronger than you think you are. And just keep pushing through, even when it feels like you just want to throw in that towel and you just want to like put your hands up and say, I give, I give up. Yeah, I totally get that. And, but for the people that are program directors or they serve this um, community or their foster parents or their possible mentors, you can be a beacon of hope and not like, you don't have to do much. Like you have to show up and care. Like you don't have to. And in fact, it's like, don't buy things. Don't give gifts. Like don't show up like as a human that can be like, a, we've seen that that can really be the pivotal so moment, huge. pivotal thing. It is. It's like, it's just not, it's not asking too yeah, much. Yeah, it, it's not complex. Just <laughs> like <laughs> show up, show love, treat me like someone of value. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, there's a bunch of adults that are like, well, I, that sounds good and I would do that, but I don't know, like, who am I? You know, they're like, I don't know if I'm good enough. Like, I don't like make all the right choices and I don't, you know, and it's like, you're good enough. Like you're a human in this world that can care about another human and and you're good enough. Like you don't need to be some idealized version of yourself before you can care for someone. All right. Well, I ask everybody that comes on the podcast this, but what do you think it will take to end our foster care crisis that Mm. keeps getting worse? What will end it? And I know that you were part of, kind of generational foster care cycles so it might help to think about that like what Hmm. what will it take that's a good question I think uh there needs to be a better emphasis of mental health services uh across the board Hmm. you know I think therapy needs to be more encouraged I think uh guided meditation or you know just alternatives that that won't have them like in this downward spiral where they're just not able to better support someone else that d- actually depends on them. I just can't help but think to myself, like, what ha- what would have happened if like my mom had better supports or someone was out there to reach out to her and like, you know, here's here's the way that I overcame my obstacles. Uh, I want to help you out and kind of teach her healthy coping strategies and um, just nourish and foster her, her growth. But I feel like that's kind of where it goes. I feel like it starts in the, in the home. I feel like it starts in the community and, you know, from there it's kind of more outward and we're able to spread it all throughout. But 
Yeah, I think uh, I think being able to to have an emphasis on those mental health services is is key. Yeah, I I love that, and you know, I feel like the farther we are, or like the more that life beats us down, or we're in a situation where we are worried about our necessities, we're worried about making rent, like we have a lot of stressors, we don't have uh, high self worth, like that makes prioritizing mental health and prioritizing your mental health needs and your self care, like it goes farther and farther on down the priority list when it's like, I don't have time, (laughs) you know, I don't have time for that when really they probably can't afford to live without it. But it really does feel like a crazy balance between like trying to manage life, trying to survive life and trying to take care of ourselves in a way that's going to allow us to have a more sustainable, healthy lifestyle. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of those pressures are put on, you know, society puts those pressures on us to be good enough or to make (laughs) rent and to do these things that they have prioritized. Yeah. Where it's like, if we could get to the root of people's issues, we could, we could do so much more, which I, I think that, it all can relate to the fact that if we have people that invest their time or they give one person the resources they need, that they'll be better for it. And we now have that one person creating a family that has better mental health and their kids will have better mental health. So it really is like, I know it seems like a lot to focus on individuals, but um, eventually those individuals become our population. No, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's, Good stuff. Ah. Well, so let everyone know where they can find you. I yeah, have sure. um, your handles and, and uh, your website. Yeah, sure. I'll link to them um, if you just want to share them. So uh, I have a website <laughs> just made it like a week ago. <laughs> uh, it's called anthony-turner.com. Uh, also, my LinkedIn is Anthony Turner, as well as my Facebook. And uh, my IG is, uh, or Instagram. <laughs> is Tony uh, underscore D-A underscore realist, R-E-A-L-E-S-T. And uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Also, uh, my Twitter is Tony Derillis. So yeah. All right, cool. Well, you stay safe and yeah. um, especially up in New York. <laughs> it's like the apocalypse yeah. here. All right, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. You too. All right, bye-bye.